thank you for sending the book and thank you for this time to talk. So yeah, Jeff, I, I got the book a couple weeks ago. I read it. I read about a third of it in the first few days and then re I read the rest of it yesterday and today. <laughs> that's, that's impressive, you know, particularly in an age when people don't read books. <laughs> it's just, it's hard for me read. to read books. So the internet has ruined me. Yeah. And that's bad because books present ideas in ways that you have to sit with and think about and and live with for a while, whereas the internet throws it at you in a little, little you know, fits and starts, and that's all you get out of it, and it's for, forgotten very easily. But it's also had the effect where I, when I do read, that it makes me forget things. It's it's changed my um, my attention span, which is horrible. Yeah, well, you're not alone. The same is true of all of us. Um, all of our attention spans are, are much less now than they were 10 years ago. Yeah, it's a very... It's a palpable thing. I mean, I, I notice it all the time, especially when I start to read. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, well conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio, Radio I wrote a couple of lines about superhumanity. This is uh, Jeff's new book. If you didn't know, I will put it in the um, text for the show. But during and after reading the book, I wrote this. A superhumanities to me is a call to action and a radical reassessment of not just the humanities, but what it means to be human and the potential of what it could mean. You can't really skim this book. It's one of those rare volumes where every sentence and every word is essential. It's not difficult to follow as uh, Jeff eschews the language of the Academy for a style that's accessible for any interested reader. 
it reminded me, Jack London once said, I think it was Jack London, said that good writing is clear thinking written out. And your writing is indeed that kind of writing. And it's a really good example of that. It takes very specific and sophisticated ideas. And I don't have to go back over a paragraph, at least not very often. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that is rare. That is rare when you are dealing with subjects such as the superhumanities addresses. And what I think it addresses is what I said. It's a way to think about ourselves through the medium of the humanities because I think mostly we think about ourselves through the medium of the technological, and we've lost the, the humanities part, at least in, in popular consciousness. If, if I don't know if you agree with that or not. No, I think that's absolutely true. We've become a machine. We've become a biological machine. We're no, we're no longer... Certainly, we're not superhuman anymore. We're just we're just human, and we're get we're becoming smaller and smaller with the, with every with every click of the 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 keyboard, as it were. Yeah, and it's it by reading something like the superhumanities, or you know, uh, experiencing or reading other things like uh, anybody you refer to. Um, God, I've I've got the all the references here, but uh, uh, Nietzsche, for example, because. I read Nietzsche when I was in college, but I haven't since then. So yeah. reading Diana's work in years has kind of refamiliarized him with me. And in a way that is not publicly, what, um, known, acceptable, comfortable, whatever it is, because it has, Nietzsche has so many things laid on top of him that were not actually him or were only a little part of him. Yeah, no, it's true. He's, He's one of many examples in the book, of course, but that's essentially what the book is about, is that so many of our fantastic writers and, and thinkers and activists and artists were were all about the superhuman, and that's what gets erased in our in our memory for some perverse reason. <laughs> well, it's not uh, easy to deal with because it, it doesn't slot into a category that... that makes most people either comfortable or that they can hook into easily. And for the purposes of, you know, people listening that haven't read the book or don't know what the term is, what, what is the superhumanities? What is the, uh, what is your definition? Well, it's a nerdy expression. Um, yes, (laughs) I made it up. I made it up. Um, we talk a lot about the humanities in the university or the college. And of course, nobody knows what they are either. So I better begin there. Yeah, the the superhumanities are the humanities. So fields like the study of literature, the study of history, the study of philosophy, religion, art, um, the superhumanities is all of those things, but with a definitive accent on altered states of knowledge and altered states of consciousness that I think produced a lot of these ideas and artworks and activisms and and moral convictions. So it's a it's a way of looking at a college education or a university system as a essentially a kind of new kind of school to for the for the superhuman as well as the human. It does the superhumanities does not deny or, or in any way belittle the human or the social or the political. It takes it in, but it also is always. Um, acknowledging this sort of vertical dimension to the human being. I think right now we're kind of, we want to acknowledge the horizontal dimension and we want to focus on it. 
but there is also this vertical dimension that is so much a part of really our global history. It's it's not just a Western or European thing. It's a global thing. Yeah, you um, use, utilize that metaphor actually quite a few times, borrowing from Nietzsche and uh, his idea of himself walking on a floor above the floor that most people are on. And it's not because he thinks he's better than other people. Well, maybe. But <laughs> what, what he's saying is, I am seeing things by being above this floor, and as you call it, the chessboard, that you would not normally see or most people wouldn't see, and this is my view of it. And above me, there's another floor, or not even a floor. You, you describe it as a stairway that just goes up to the sky and the infinite. Yeah. And so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so there's two metaphors I use a lot in the book that I think would help in this context. One is the the Nietzschean metaphor that, you know, Nietzsche simply walks around on a floor above us. And, you know, in his language, we put refuse and and um, essentially a wall or a ceiling between ourselves and him. We, we can hear him walking up there, but we don't want to acknowledge that there there's more to us than what we can see or where we're living. So there's that metaphor. And then the chessboard metaphor is, you know, if you're playing chess, there are a bunch of black pieces and white pieces, and it's a zero-sum game. Somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose, unless, of course, it's a draw. But it's it's really set up. The game is set up to create winners and losers. And really the question of this book is, well, what if we don't want to play that game anymore? What if we just want to stand up from the chessboard? And acknowledge that the player is not on the chessboard. The player is not on the winning or losing team. There's, there's something else going on here. Um, so those are the two kind of reigning metaphors of the book. And both of them run all the way through the chapters, as you, as you know now. Yeah, they do. The, another thing that uh, I thought right when you were speaking right now is it's kind of a, it's kind of a book of the damned. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It is. It focused, yeah, and by that you you mean refer to Charles Ford. Yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, it makes this argument that reality doesn't really fit into our religious registers or our scientific registers, that it's something else. It's a, it's this, it's, it's the book of the damned. You know, we can't deal with it, so we we don't. We just ignore it. But it just keeps happening. Yeah, I, and, and another quote that I thought of, I'm trying to find, I've got 30-something questions here, but I remember the quote that it reminded me of, and it reminded me of Galileo when he was up before the before the Inquisition, and they said, recant, and he said, yeah, but, it, but, 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 but and yet it moves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in some sense, it doesn't matter what people say. You know, the real is the real, and people will keep having these extraordinary experiences regardless of what anybody says. Um, and, you know, the argument the argument I'm trying to make in the book is, look, these extraordinary experiences are really, really cool, and they're really, really scary because they show us that the way we carve up the world isn't really the world. It's just the way we've been taught to carve it up. Um, but that's okay. That's part of what that's part of what a, an intellectual or, or a seeker should be as someone who's willing to let go of old paradigms and, and experiment with new paradigms. Yeah, you do make the point in the book, and it's a very excluded middle point, at least to me, that you don't abandon you don't abandon uh, these models. No. You just realize that there's others 
at play here that are invisible to most people, especially um, those who have never had an experience of uh, the numinous or the paranormal or whatever you want to call it. These seem to open up the doors, um, well, to open up the doors of perception, to coin a phrase, for for people to realize that that is not the exact explanation of what's going on, that there is more, and that other people have experienced this. Yeah, it's it's a simply a plea to let more in to to let the human be more, not less. And again, that doesn't mean all of our hard won um, debates around around politics and morality aren't aren't important. It just means they're not the whole the whole picture. Um, you know, did, to give an example, I mean, I think examples always help here. What mm-hmm. one of the people I treat towards the end of the book is Rachel Peterson. Um, yeah. This, this intellectual at Harvard now who, who studies psychedelics and religion. And Rachel's really interesting. Rachel, by the way, is an alum of Rice University. She was here as a, as a college undergraduate. I did not know her. Mm-hmm. I did not have her in class, but I've since got to know her. Yeah, synchronicity. She, <laughs> yeah, after she graduated from Rice, she got into... Um, environmental activism. She became an activist, and she worked for a nonprofit. And she literally saw, you know, forests forests being deforested and, and burned all around the world on satellite images. And the work made her more and more depressed in a in a clinical sense. And she started to suffer a kind of clinical depression. And to treat the depression, she decided to enter this experimental work group or study group at Johns Hopkins, I believe it was Johns Hopkins, and they gave her psilocybin mm-hmm. to, to treat her, her depression. And, you know, basically what happened is she came to encounter God or what she perceived to be God, some kind of beneficent ground of all being, and she lost her atheism. She She, she entered the experience as an atheist, but she did not exit the experience as an atheist. And when I talked to her, you know, what what the journalists and the clinicians really want to know is, did it cure your clinical depression? That's really all they seem to care about. Yeah. You know, the pharmaceutical industry wants to know if the molecule can cure this or that condition. Yep. And the way she puts it is, is I think, spot on. She says, look, the psilocybin did not cure me of my depression, but I now understand very clearly that what's depressed is just one room of a very large house. Mm-hmm. And there's this, there are other aspects of my life and my person that are just not affected by this condition. And so that's essentially, again, that takes us back to the Nietzschean idea that we are, we are conflating our entire selves with only aspects of ourselves. And if we do that, there's every reason to be depressed. There's every reason to be upset. Um, But if we don't do that, it's not clear we will be depressed or as upset. And it doesn't mean we won't be an activist or we won't be concerned. It just puts it all in 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 a broader kind of cosmic context. Yeah, that keeps you from dwelling on the part that's keeping you from moving forward or learning other things or whatever it is. Yeah. And I don't even know if that's bracketing, but it allows somebody to deal with an existential dread or um, 
emergency that a lot of people have. Yeah. Jeff, as I look through my questions, a great many of them are just comments. I didn't even actually ask a question. Well, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just I'd read something. So, well, that make me think of this happened with Diana's book, too, uh, with American Cosmic. I'd read a page and I'd say, oh, I wonder about this. And then the next page she'd be talking about it. And one of my statements I, I'm looking at now, I found resonance with your idea that the supernatural or supernormal is us. The medium for these experiences, the human psyche and nervous system, which places us squarely in the paranormal, in the paranormal, not separate from it. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, I don't know if it's a joke or just an observation, but one of the things I often say is that the one thing that joins or unites all experiences of God or the gods or some kind of discarnate being or is that these are always experiences of the human. You know, human beings have these experiences. Human beings report these experiences. So clearly there's something about the human that that is potential or that is capable of having these sorts of experiences. And that's kind of what I mean when I say that they're us. Um, and I don't mean us on any kind of superficial level. Um, I don't mean they're Greg or Jeff or... Uh, you know, American society. I mean, there's there's some there's something deeper going on here that's that's really worth dwelling on. Yeah, and that's where that connection happens. Um, and it's a, I guess, an experience of the numinous. What do you think of the experience? An experience of the uncanny or supernatural, just to use unexact uh, uh, inexact words, as a gateway drug to superhumanness. Um, is yeah. it a gift? How is it a gift or a curse? One of the reasons that I think we have excluded all of this stuff is that so that we can have our conclusions. In other words, I, I think our can, can, so we can hold on to them. Yeah. Yeah, I think our conclusions about history or about human nature or about ethics or about really almost anything—religion, art, anything is mostly a function of our exclusions. It's, it's what we've refused to think about. Mm -hmm. And as long as we can keep all that stuff off the table and we can control the table, then of course we can say say what's what's on the table. Yeah, because what's we, real and what's not. What, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because we just took all the things off the table that we can't explain. <laughs> Yeah, you 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 did take James Randi to task at least once, which I like. Yeah, well, he should be taken to task. He's he was wrong. Yeah, completely. And, and so the gateway drug part of this is that once we put all this messy stuff back on the table, <laughs> we no longer actually do understand what's going on. But that's a good thing. That's that's part of the process. That's yeah. that's what that's what a person a, a thinking person should want. If if you understand everything and nothing upsets your apple cart, well, that's boring and that's not very interesting and it's probably also not true by the way. You're probably refusing to think about a lot of things. Yeah. That that would not that would violate your worldview mm -hmm. so the gateway drug to go back to your question i the, the reason i'm so i put that in quotes joe what oh yeah gateway drug in quotes sorry yeah, no, i know i know it's fine it's a good expression 
the the reason I'm so interested in the in paranormal phenomena are not because I believe everything. It's actually because I don't understand these things and I believe nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm trying I'm trying to point to these phenomena as w- places where our cultural systems or our intellectual systems just break down. Yeah. And to me that's delicious. That's ecstatic. That's positive. To other people that's horrible. That's that's a an offense or that's a problem. I, I don't see it that way. So I, I do think there's a kind of mystery there of, of attitude, you know. Yeah, there is. It's like these things happen. There's a giant neon finger pointing saying, look at this. And a lot of people look away. Yeah. Yeah. And and sometimes the experiencers themselves suppress it. Oh, yeah, that happens all the time. I just talked to somebody the other day that said, I forgot this for years until I just suddenly remembered it the other day. I said, yeah, your brain didn't have any place to put it and it didn't know what to do with it until you were reminded recently. She said, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And it it gets worse than that because I also, I mean, a part of my other impulse here is, is essentially a moral one. I, you know, I talk to human beings all the time who have these experiences and then they can't talk about them because their spouses or their families Mm -hmm. or their their religious traditions or their, their professions will make fun of them. Yep. And, um, that's a problem. That's a real problem. And so affirming these things doesn't mean, again, that you believe everything. It means that you're affirming human beings who are essentially trying to tell us what happened. Yeah. Near the end of the book, you said, to deny or defirm is a poisonous assertion. I really like that because that was my attitude for a long time, just kind of this agnosticism. Yeah. But in the last few years, talking to you, other people, and a lot to um, people that have gone through these kind of things. I've got to assume that these, that, that something's happening and that these people are describing what happened to them. And that way it's more interesting, more fun. And it's made me a lot of new and smart friends. <laughs> and maybe that's one way forward in, in the superhumanities. Well, yeah. I mean, what, what I was doing there as I was talking to my colleagues, particularly in Europe, who will adopt what they call methodological agnosticism. Mm -hmm. And what they mean by that is they'll take these experiences all in as descriptive or as historical um, events, but they themselves are not going to take a position on what's true or not, or whether there's one mind or many minds or one God or many gods or or what have you, whatever whatever metaphysical position there might be. And so they, they'll adopt an agnosticism. And for them, that's a very um, productive and, and moral position to take. And I get that. I do, right, I, right. I do understand it. However, I think when intellectuals take that stance, that what they're really doing is indirectly affirming a kind of materialism or a kind of historicism because they're not really challenging the culture. They're, they're letting the culture be essentially. And I don't want to let the culture be. 
And it's not that I know what reality is. I don't know what reality is. But I'm willing to adopt different metaphysical systems or different ontological options and take them as far as they'll go. Because I think that's that's what we're called to do. And I think that's what will ultimately challenge our present metaphysical assumption, which is materialism. Um, yeah. I think that's where, where the culture is essentially at because of its science and its technology. It, it assumes that all there is is matter organized in, in mathematical ways. And that's fine. That explains a lot. But unfortunately, it doesn't explain us. <laughs> uh, it doesn't explain the explainer. Um, and that's that's where the superhumanities, I think, come in. How do you mean it doesn't explain the explainer? I think I know what you mean, but uh, yeah. elaborate. Well, well, the materialist scientific model can explain anything except, of course, consciousness or mm -hmm. the subject, the subject doing the science or doing the mathematics. It can't, it can't explain subjectivity or awareness or first-person consciousness sure. because science itself is a third-person descriptive method. It, yeah. it it assumes an objective world. Yeah, it and, it, it brackets the observer out. Well, it it it, it wants to eliminate. Yes, yeah. activity. That's true. Of all, of all kinds, and hence the ideal of objectivity. And again, that produces good science, but it it also eliminates us. And and that's that's what I think is so. Well, it's morally disturbing. It's spiritually disturbing, but it's also just fundamentally wrong. In your experience, if a scientist decides that uh, that objectivity is is impossible, how does that affect them? Well, why you know I wrote a book on on scientists. It's called The Flip. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, and essentially what I try to show is that when a scientist has one of these extraordinary experiences, sometimes they will flip. By which I mean they'll understand that consciousness or awareness or subjectivity, whatever language you you prefer, is in fact fundamental. And that this does not actually render their science wrong or or misguided. It simply renders it inadequate. Mm -hmm. And they they end up adopting a much richer worldview because of these experiences. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I often joke that that the sciences are really just subdivisions of the humanities. And what I <laughs> what I mean by that is that. I've never met a scientist who wasn't a human being. And to which Whitley Strieber says, I have. <laughs> <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> and I'm like, oh shit, I never thought of that. <laughs> but, um, but I have not. I have never met a scientist who wasn't a human being. And, you know, these, these human beings love their children and their husbands and their wives and they read poetry and literature and they think philosophical thoughts and they're, they're rich, rich human beings with, with inner lives. Um, and the, the really, really articulate scientists know darn well that the science only can do certain things. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's what I'm trying to say here. It's not, it's not an anti-scientific argument at all. It's no, just, no, I didn't take it as that. Yeah, let's let science be science, and let's not pretend that all knowledge is scientific knowledge, which is just nonsense. You do use the metaphor of the right and left brain uh, quite a few times, and I've, yeah. I've been I've been kind of pushing that in the last few years in a different way, 
about the UFO thing and that uh, mostly it's done through the right brain and people have ignored the left brain side of, uh, of, of uh, that kind of research. Yeah, I think you mean the opposite. I, you know, I think the, the, yeah, no, the, uh, let me get this right. Sorry, I was saying I've ignored the right brain side. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I like the left brain, right brain, hemispherical stuff. Uh, I, my neuroscientist friends will say it's yeah, just, it's not literal. I'm like, so what? It works. Yeah, it's a nice metaphor. Yeah, and there really is something to it. I mean, the there are functions that are dominant in one hemisphere or the other. And mm -hmm. uh, at least, again, in my professional world, the ways of knowledge that affirm the left hemisphere, so reason, linearity, causality, objectivity, description, these are all privileged and funded and the ways of knowing that privilege the right hemisphere, like comparison, art, image, story, holism, these are all the things you're not supposed to study, right? Um, these are, these are, you know, you go to college or the university and you're told to study STEM. You're, you're not told now to study the humanities, which I think is a horrible yeah. piece of advice, by the way. Um, but that's certainly where our culture is. Yeah, I think people are kind of scared of, of what I've encountered recently is, um, uh, well, in the last few years, I was on a show and I said, well, nobody thinks about the, the, the witness experience, how it affects them personally, psychologically, spiritually. And one of the people on the show said, well, how is that going to get us to solve anything? And my answer was, one, I don't know. Uh, and two... Uh, the data-driven approach hasn't gotten us anywhere either. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually, I think, led us away from uh, from the actual phenomenon. Yeah, I said I think this this approach can draw us closer in a different way than the data-driven materialistic approach, which is fine and it should be there and insights can be gleaned from it, probably ones we haven't even thought of yet. Yeah. But, but I mean, the, Yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, the UFO phenomena is something I don't address in this book, but of course I'm very interested in, and I think it's a perfect example of what you're saying. It, we've turned the UFO into a machine in the sky and to a potential threat, to yeah. speak in, in military language. Yeah. But in fact, if you actually look at these encounter experiences, and I don't have to tell you this, Greg, you're, I'm preaching to the choir here, is... You know, the the UFO looks more like a soul than a machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people like Joshua Kutchin now are basically pointing this out in, in very extensive terms that really what we're working with here is the world of the dead. Mm -hmm. and, or what we call that. Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, Whitley's wife said, which inspired uh, uh, Josh to write his book. Yeah. Well... Talk about taboo. <laughs> you know, try try to talk about the world of the dead to the U.S. Congress or to the U.S. Air Force. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Yeah, that does. Um, it's a non-starter and doesn't make any sense. And yeah, and... yeah, but but that's I think what's happening. And to go back to your your critic who says, well, how is that going to allow us to solve X Y? It's not. No, it's going to make give us a much better sense of what's actually happening, you know? Yeah. Um, I think I said, it. I don't know, but it's got to be better. 
or at least helpful. Well, it's not going to allow us to build another machine or another bomb. Right. But it is going to give us a much better sense of where we are in the cosmos and, frankly, what happens to us after we all die. And, you know, guess what? We're all going to die. <laughs> um, people, do people not know that? I mean... Oh, there's a whole bunch of literature about the, uh, at least some literature about the denial of death, and that's why we do these things that we do. Yeah, I know. That's one theory about what religion is. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, there's a lot of that there. But my, my point is, is that I think these topics would allow us to be much, much richer human beings, but they wouldn't necessarily help us to make more more technological stuff. That's certainly true. Yeah. And if that's if the case, then it, it's not interesting to people that want more technological stuff. Though. Yeah. Yeah. There was a really great quote in one of the earlier chapters, and I really resonated with it, was uh, magic is often quite real in and through the faking. Yeah. Yeah, would well, you want to talk about that? Yes, very much so, because I heard this a few years ago when James McLennan was speaking about the entity uh, letters uh, on Coast yeah. to Coast, and he said, the faking is part of it. Yep. That's how it works. Yep. And I, I don't even know if he said, I'm sorry, that's how it worked. That's a fact. And yeah. if you're going to be binary about it, you're never going to get anywhere. No. Yeah. And this is, again, this is where I joke about religion. I mean, religion is basically faking it until you make it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, when I say that, people are like, oh, yeah, it is, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it is. And also, you know, things like the uh, placebo, which is widely used in the pharmaceutical industry now, it's a total fake. It's a total fraud. Mm -hmm. And it works about 30, 25 to 30% of the time. Yeah. And we don't really know why. Um, we know it has something to do with human beings who need to be faked to, to heal themselves or to get the right, the right physiological effect. Um, I personally think a lot of spiritualist and occult phenomena make a lot of sense once we recognize this. Um, I think a lot of paranormal phenomena need plausible deniability. In other words, the person won't own up to it. So if you're sitting around in a circle in a seance in a dark room and weird shit's happening, you never have to... You never have to own up to that, the being the agent of that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually, nobody knows who the agent is, <laughs> and that's the whole point of the darkness and the circle and and the the quote unquote medium. I mean, they yeah. don't call mediums for nothing. <laughs> you know, you need the medium to, of course, get the phenomena, but the medium will be the first person to tell you, "Well, it's not me. I'm not doing this." Um, so. I do think trickery and and essentially faking it are really crucial to 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 the real deal, and that's hard for people to hear because again they want to be binary about it to to, to use your language. Yeah, that, is it is it real or not? Is it fake or not? Is it, it it's you can't approach it that way because it'll as soon as you do that it runs away. Yeah, or it doesn't appear. Yeah, 
Or I would I would posit if you totally believe it, it may run away too. Uh, say that again. If you totally believe it, it may run away too. Meaning that you yeah. would, you know, see things that other people don't or whatever. I I don't know. I'm I'm trying yeah. to be you know. It, my idea is an absolutist mind does not allow things to come in and out and, and information to to uh, uh, to this, enter. This again. This is my joke about science and the paranormal. I'm like trying to shove the paranormal into the scientific method it's like going to the north pole to look for zebras <laughs> you just, don't live there <laughs> yeah, guess what you're not going to find any and, <laughs> and you're going to come back and say there are no zebras and I'm like uh actually there are <laughs> you just went to the wrong you went to the wrong place on the planet um your method is all screwed up frankly um but that's again, I mean, if you want the paranormal to disappear, just shove it into a scientific method. It'll go away. Yeah. Um, and that's why, again, this faking it or this trickery is so difficult for, I think, our mindsets to, you know, because a lot of parapsychologists, they'll, they'll discover a medium cheating just once. Yeah, and that's it. That's it. Throw, 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 the, throw the guy out or throw the woman out. I'm like... But mediums cheat. <laughs> they do. Uh, Remember, I think Eusapia Palladia, who you talked about, isn't yeah. she the one that said tie? Or was that Hume? He said Usap tie my Hume. He said tie my arms down, or I will cheat. Yeah, Usapia Palladino. Palladino. That's it. She definitely cheated, and she was definitely the real deal. Mm -hmm. And it's all mixed together in this like bizarre thing. I, you know, I'm thinking of years ago. I there was this show on radio show on um, on the placebo effect and it started out with this indigenous young man I forget which tribe he was from I think it was someone in the northwest of the US and he apprenticed as a shaman and he essentially learned all these tricks and all of them were tricks you know yeah and um, he was like so disgusted with this. Um, and but then he got called in to work with like the wife of the of the chief or something who was very ill, and he went in. He did his little bag of tricks, and she got better. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, "Oh shit!" Um, so he knew he was doing a trick, but she, you know, she didn't, of course. And then he did it again and again, and he realized that actually, the tricks sometimes work not because their tricks but because this is what people need this is part of the healing rituals yeah. of his particular culture yeah and um it pulls in what's needed even though you think you're faking it yeah and i think in our in, in kind it's of western, ritual you know yeah. i mean that's what ritual is for <laughs> in western secular culture it's the placebo effect i mean that's a trick folks and mm -hmm. But literally, the guy in the white coat, and it's usually a guy, and it's usually a white coat, is yeah. is the ritual people need. Um, I you know, I come from this little this little town in Nebraska, Greg, and my mom always tells the story when she was younger. There was a doctor there, and everybody who came in, didn't matter what you came in for, you were going to get a shot. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that that was his plus. I mean, that was his um his act. Yeah, and he gave you a shot, and a lot of people felt better afterwards. Yeah, and 
I was like, okay, that's that's the local shaman, you know. Um, and who knows what was in that shot? You know, maybe there were some steroids in that shot. Maybe there was some antibody. I don't know what was in that shot. Maybe there it was, was. It was probably that um, that uh, that doctor that used to go around giving vitamin and, and amphetamine shots to people at Kennedy. Yeah, I don't know. It was that kind of thing. <laughs> The point is, is that people need to be tricked into their into their powers. That's yeah. really the trick. Yeah. But why is that? I mean, that's really kind of something I struggle with in this book is why do we need to be tricked into this? Why? Like, I'll often say I don't believe in be- I don't believe beliefs, but I believe in belief. Yeah. Um, I know people need to believe X, Y, or Z for X, Y, or Z to happen. But I personally don't believe in the Virgin Mary or the saint or the God or the angel or whatever the heck they're praying to, you know. Um, but I, I'm convinced that um, extraordinary things happen by praying to those those entities. So you you have to have... It happened to me. It happened to you? I had a request to go and pray at the sanctuary of the Virgin of Guadalupe in Mexico City. Uh-huh. I told my friend, I am not a Christian, although I grew up in that tradition and certainly not Catholic. And I was told, just, you know, just go do it anyway. So what I did, Jeff, is I went to the place, I sat down, I went and looked at the the tilma, the uh, what's that called? The um, yeah, the the shroud, the shroud that the 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 uh, supposedly the uh, Aztec guy was wearing when this uh, when the miracle happened, that has the you know Virgin of Guadalupe on it that supposedly appeared on it miraculously. Yeah. So I went I went and went on the little you know <laughs> escalator th- uh, the moving sidewalk thing and looked at it for probably three or four different times. Then I went and sat about a hundred feet away from it in some empty pews. And I completely cleared my mind of all doubt and skepticism and became a complete devotee of the Virgin of Guadalupe. And when I realized or when I felt like all I was thinking about was that belief, I pulled out my phone and I read the I read the um, which I had downloaded a, a prayer to the Virgin of Guadalupe. And I included, you know, what my friend wanted in it and some stuff that I wanted. And and then it said, say, five Hail Marys, which I've never done in my life. So I had to read those off my phone, too. (laughs) (laughs) And the weird thing was the entire time I did that, all I saw was that image in front of the church uh, on that, uh, the image of the Virgin Guadalupe on that uh, shroud. I would just stare at it like it was the only thing. And I... It took me about 10 or 20 minutes to get into that state of mind. It took me another 10 or 20 minutes to get out of it. Very strange. And then I called later and asked, and um, apparently it helped. And one of my wishes actually came true, too. But the thing is that I was the one that had to make it happen. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did it as an experiment, but it seemed to work. Yeah, I... You know, I grew up in Catholicism, so I grew up Roman Catholic, and we were always told that the the faith is true because A, it's been around so long, and B, there are all these miracles in it, and the miracles always establish the truth of whatever, of the faith, right, in this case. 
And, you know, as a kid, um, I believed all that. That all seemed plausible to me. Um, until I got older and I started to look at other people's religious traditions and faiths, and I realized that the same miracles happen in all these different religious traditions. Yeah. Um, and I realized that what we call a miracle certainly happens uh, anywhere and everywhere, but it actually doesn't seem to depend on the deity or the virgin or the God or whatever, whatever it is that the locals think it does. And, and yet it does. Yeah. I, yeah, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm trying to speak paradoxically there because of course it does depend on that belief. And yet looked at from a more global or comparative perspective, it clearly doesn't. Yeah. And I think it's holding those two things together. That's hard. It's difficult for us. Um, yeah, well, maybe it's the medium to coin a term that something acts through, and you just have to find out what that medium is. And it may not even be through your own culture, which is calls up things about appropriation and all that, but still. Yeah. I think we all, you know, my, my colleague Tanya Lurman talks about models of mind, and we all work with models of mind. We, we assume, for example, I think most of us assume that the mind is somehow contained in the brain cavity and that it's looking out onto the world through the eyes and the senses and mm -hmm. that we're essentially this ghost in a machine to use a to use a common expression yeah but not every culture believes that actually and when people pray for example for another person when they pray to God, they're they're assuming that a God's listening in some way, and so there's a kind of porosity or in a kind of mm -hmm. telepathic union set up between God and and this other person, both the person that's praying and the person that's being prayed for, and so there's an entirely different model of mind that's being assumed in that relatively simple religious act, um, and I think I just don't think we know what mind is. You know, and I, so I think these other models of mind are actually quite plausible and quite effective because they they work with with assumptions that that we're not just a set of neurons in a brain cavity that we're you know we're, we've, we we extend into the environment and maybe even into into divinity. Um, yeah. And so I find I find that fascinating. I find simple things like prayer absolutely fascinating because they suggest that we're not who we say we are yeah well there's that idea that's been floating around for quite a while that the mind is not contained in the brain um and that and when you when you think in that way a lot of things become more plausible just like if you think of uh, the universe as a collection of information uh and that if you think if you think about that then all these weird things start to sound normal instead of strange yeah. <laughs> that's what that's what I mean by making the impossible possible. I I mean you provide a model of mind or a model of reality that makes these impossible phenomena suddenly very plausible if not predictable. Mm -hmm. Another question um, about extraordinary experience, which I'm interested in, of course. 
How important do you think it is in the personal realization or coding of, of the superhuman, somebody that becomes superhuman? You, since you say that deeper esoteric realizations are ineffable and not communicated through language, or a lot of them are, and that reminded me of the Japanese way of teaching that involves just doing a task until a gnosis of technique or special knowledge is actually realized. So the question is, how important do I think these extraordinary... Yeah, do people have to have some... Um, because throughout the book, and including yourself, you describe experiences that people have had, personal ones, um, mostly personal ones where their worldviews turned upside down. Some where it's somebody's just working with people and this comes up over and over again and they have to, they have to deal with it. Um, but, you know... For a, a true exper- experience of what you are defining as the superhuman, do people need that? You know, do you need that flash of uh, of um, yeah. extraordinary experience, or can it come through other ways too and be just as effective? I'm saying this because I don't know if I've ever had that kind of deeply esoteric experience. Yeah. Yet I'm still deeply interested in and and uh, in, in you know um, embedded within it within the community yeah. that looks at it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I get asked that question a lot and it's usually in the form of, have you had these experiences? Well, I know you've had, cause you've described it well, in your writing and everything. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I've had a few, but I think most people have had a few. I think I'm rather dull, Greg. And I don't think, um, like Willie Strieber always asks me this, and I always tell him, no, I've never had that. No, it's always a no. No, sorry, I've never had yeah, that. Yeah, he asked me the same thing, and he seemed he seemed kind of de- de- um, depressed when I told him that I did. Yeah, well, Whit- Whitley's a kind of radioactive, you know, reactor. I mean, that guy is, is like wild, and I yep. don't think he's put together like us. So no. where am I going with this? It doesn't uh, yeah. bother me that I haven't had these experiences because I know other people have. And I think if you sit long enough with other people's experiences, it could happen that you develop a bigger worldview and that you flip, to use my language. Like, oh, yeah, true. Greg, you are definitely a flipped human being. Uh, if I had to name a flipped human being, I'd just say Greg Bishop. So, <laughs> well, that's so, nice. To listen to Greg Bishop. Um, but unfortunately, it often does require such an experience. People are adamantly horizontal and flatlandish <laughs> until they've had such an experience. And that's not a condemnation or a judgment, Greg. It's just an observation. Yeah. I, th- I think... Many paths. Yeah, well... No, I wouldn't be that inclusive or generous. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I think flatland works perfectly well and is totally plausible as long as you stay in flatland. Once you get pulled out of flatland into the third dimension, flatland doesn't work so well anymore. Yeah, everybody and, says you can't go back. Well, but you do have to go back. And if you actually read that little book, what happens is I've read it, but a long time ago. Well, what happens it's is... It's a tiny a, little book. Yeah. What happens is that A Square, the, the main protagonist of the book, he gets pulled out of Flatland, and he sees that these two dimensions are just two dimensions, and there's this whole third yeah. dimension. He gets abducted. <laughs> yeah, he gets... No, literally, I've said that. He gets abducted. It's even He even gets abducted by a sphere, by the way. 
That's right. And every when he sees it come through his uh, dimension, it's just a line that gets bigger and smaller. Yeah. But here's the thing. When he goes back, they throw him in jail, Greg. That's right. He, I think, you know, it's been a while since I read it, but I think the book ends with him in jail. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's an up, it's, it's, it's another version of, of Plato's cave, you know, when, when the people go out of the cave and they realize that the shadows on the wall are just shadows on the wall. And then they go back into the cave. The people in the cave think they're crazy. Yeah. And, and so I do think it's not just many paths. Um, it's that some people are just fundamentally no more than other people. And I don't mean that in an educational sense. I mean it in this metaphysical sense. Yeah. Um, and that goes back to Nietzsche's metaphor, you know, that he's just on another floor of the house. And we're, we keep imagining that this floor is the only floor. And it's just not true. It's just not true. Yeah. Um, and it is a prison in a lot of ways. Yeah. But it works. And so when people say all there is is matter or all there is is history or all there is is whatever there is, I'm like, look, I know, I get it. I I understand that's your experience. But guess what? It's not everybody's experience. Um, And I'm just trying to, I guess I am emphasizing or foregrounding these people who have been abducted out of Flatland. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. You go into some t- detail about that uh, phrase, the truth must be depressing. I think it's a title of one of the whole chapters, actually. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. And so for people who haven't read the book, what do you mean by that? How does the machine, as your colleague calls it, make it uh, make it depressing or suppress it? Well, okay, that's an inside joke. It's an academic joke. I, I, oh, I think I got it, too. Yeah, but. yeah. I mean, I, I've, gone, oh, I've gone both in Europe and the States to a lot of universities, and I say, you know, I think I've discovered the criterion of all truth in the humanities. And I asked them if they want to hear it. And, you know, they go along with me. Of course, they want to hear it. And I said, okay, here it is. The truth has to be depressing. (laughs) And they all laugh. Everybody always laughs. And the reason they laugh is because I'm right. (laughs) Yes, of course. That's the basis of humor. (laughs) Yes. And they realize how ridiculous that is. Yeah, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be true. You know, so like if you're a professor, if you say something that takes apart something, that's critical of something, then you're smart. But if you say something that puts things back together or that, God forbid, is cosmic or, or affirmative in some ways, then you're a dilettante. You're you're a new age right. thinker, you know? I mean, I've been called these these things. And I just think that's a very sad state of things where the person who's trying to put things back together is made fun of and the person who only takes things apart is praised as as somehow smart. Yeah, um, yeah, you talk about that quite a lot in the book. Yeah. I can't remember the name of a feminist writer who who had all these ideas about criticism and how criticism is treated as something, you know, criticism and cynicism is treated as something that is um, laudable, whereas criticism produces nothing. It's just parasitic on something else, as you know, as when people try yeah. to put things together. The fe- the feminist critic is Rita Felsky. Thank you. And, yeah, and the um, 
It's a wonderful, beautiful book. It's called The Limits of Critique is what the book is called. Mm-hmm. And Felsky's, you know, famous for, of course, being a feminist literary critic. So she knows how to criticize. She knows how to take things apart. But what she's arguing in this book is that there are limits to critique and critique is always symbiotic on something else and it it can't do anything on its own. And so she's very critical of critique. Yeah, she's well, she affirms critique as we should, but she it's it's inadequate. It can only get you so far. And. So I take her up as, you know, a champion of this this basic idea that we have to go further than this, and it's that's not sufficient. And the truth does not always have to be depressing. Um, that's that's how I take her up. And um, but yeah, that's a big part of the book is this argument, this basic argument we're we're, we're describing right now. That for some reason really um, resonated with me because of the. Um people within and without the paranormal that that believe that critique is primary and they don't they don't really care about where something comes from all they care about is is critiquing it and within that critique is the is the dialectic not 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 what the person is saying i mean it's inherently hostile to the whatever is coming up which is fine but you also within um in, within this book, you say that this is probably part of what's wrong with why why society is kind of uh, American society. Well, actually, most of the world right now is is um, in such a quandary. It's because people know how to critique, but they don't know how to do correct. You know, and that um, this uh, that f- uh, Western philosophy in the last hundred years has basically been <laughs> how there is no meaning and if there's no meaning then of course you get things like power is right and all the other things that is that are happening right now yeah i th- i think intellectuals are partly responsible frankly for the situation today um particularly postmodern intellectuals mm-hmm. um and i say that in the book you know i say that that probably won't win me a lot of friends but i I could I, tell that when I was reading it, but I I like a critique of, of that kind of mindset, and I'd never heard it expressed in that way because I'm always thinking, well, it's you know, it's, it's uh, people's upbringing and the permissive, not the permissiveness, but the, the the lack of direction for children and all that, so they can believe whatever they want. But there's uh-huh. there's a lot to be said for this, uh, the idea of the uh, almost the nihilism of uh, last couple, you know, last few decades or last well, hundred years. I think years. you could just remove the adjective almost. Yeah. <laughs> no, I th- I think it is nihilism. I think I think a lot of modern intellectual life is nihilistic to the core. Mm-hmm. And essentially, what I'm arguing in this book is oh, enough. Yeah. Okay, let's let's put things back together now, and and let's not pretend that that's the way to put them all together. I mean, we're not going to pretend to be forever true and correct here. That's not the point. The point is we have to put things back together. And we have to create visions of the future that are that are positive and ex- and that people that we want, um, and therefore other people will want. You know, I don't I don't understand why we want to keep painting ourselves into a box. Mm-hmm. Um, just going, you know, as one of my colleagues put it, we just go around and around on a little hamster wheel. We don't we don't actually go anywhere. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, th- this one, uh, actually, when you're talking about William James, because I knew about his work in, um, you know, obviously, varieties of religious experience and his work in um, psychic research. But you had a quote from him and is uh, relevant to people to listen to this show and me. And the quote is, consciousness is evolving itself in and through such work. Yeah. Um, maybe you could discuss what, what he means by that. I mean, I, uh, what I said after that, it was by opening ourselves up to the pl- this pluralistic view of reality where I'm informing our future selves, possibly. Well, so, again, I, I think the assumption is that when somebody writes a book or reads a book or talks about an idea, they're just playing with things in their head and doesn't have any, it doesn't have any impact in the world. And I think what James is saying there is actually no, when we entertain these other possibilities, we actually are evolving consciousness. We're actually changing the way we are in the world. And that this will have cultural and social impact if, if it's done often enough and well enough. And you know, I'm trying to make a similar argument for the book, that right. the, the book itself is an agent is an evolutionary agent of change. It's a, it's a, it's it's a mutant, you know. Mm-hmm. And by picking up this book and reading it, you yourself might be infected with this this mutanity, this this mutant uh, humanity. Hopefully, hopefully. Um, so I'm trying to make through James there, you know, and I make that argument in the er- earlier chapter too about. Again, reading is is not an innocent activity. You're you're actually changing the world when you're when you're reading a, a sufficiently powerful text. Mm-hmm. It's it's changing you. Yeah, it and it it has to change you. Well, it doesn't have to. What it's doing, I think, when you read your book or or James's work or things like this, is that if there's a seed in you, this is watering it. Yeah, or. Or it's it's more than watering it. It's you know it, it can flip it, it can tip it, or or trick it. it mm-hmm. we're, it's like going back to this placebo effect. It's not that I don't think you know that that Jeff Kripal is some kind of magus, or that that the book is is some some sort of magical object in itself. But I do think when a sufficiently ready reader picks it up, it can have this effect. Because the the reader's ready for that. It's the reader who's the magical force here. But the reader needs the text or those words or that idea to, to activate her or his or their own powers. That's yeah. the ar- that's the argument. Yeah, that's kind of how we think about our, our UFO tarot cards too. If there's something in there that somebody is thinking but it hasn't come out yet, maybe this can pull it out. And maybe can get them thinking in a different way or interested in something they didn't know they would be interested in without having to read through a whole book by just doing it through direct image, uh, uh, the, the effect of an image. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've written a lot of things about the magical qualities of reading and writing. So I, I really do see reading and writing in extraordinary ways. I, I don't, I think we think of them as banal, but we, we mistake that's that's our own mistake 
They can be banal, of course. I mean, when I read a cereal box or something, I, <laughs> I'm not I'm not communing with God. I mean, I'm probably just eating Cheerios or something. Um, but when I pick up a a text that's been around for hundreds of years and has been reproduced and preserved for reason, like Schopenhauer or Nietzsche or Gloria Anzaldúa or or whoever the author is. I mean, there's a lot at stake there. I might get up from that book a different person than I sat down. True, and this reminds me of one part in the book that I didn't know about. I mean, I knew about the uh, Hermes Dermestigus um, text, but I didn't know it was popularized, and probably inaccurately so, and to the tastes of, of of Lorenzo de' Medici. And that's what uh, formed a lot of uh, European esoteric thought uh, during and after the Renaissance. Yeah, yeah. The, you need a rich guy to to like support the the translators and the the people doing the work, or a rich rich woman. You just need you need wealth to, mm-hmm. to some of these things. Um, yeah, those texts, I mean, there's a whole discussion of, of what Valter Honograph calls hermetic spirituality, which is this this early or this ancient way of, of, of experimenting with consciousness um, that was very eclectic, um, very much like the New Age, but was in, was, in a, was in Egypt, in the Mediterranean world, which was extremely pluralistic and very much a kind of spiritual bazaar, as it were, in mm-hmm. the first centuries of, of the common era. And so this hermetic spirituality that develops there is very eclectic, but in a, in a way that emphasizes this vertical dimension again. If, if, you, if you acknowledge the vertical dimension, it doesn't matter what pieces you put together on the horizontal dimension. You know, it's all yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you um, use what works. You just use whatever's lying around. And, of course, what's lying around is comes from many cultures. Yeah. Um, but you're affirming this, this transcendent perspective. You're not stuck in any one of the cultural narratives or, or identities. Yeah, I, I kind of think that was the point. When I uh, did uh, some um, esoteric uh, schooling with the builders of the Adidam, I went through the first grade and then I realized that it was that all of this going back to however you want to see it is, is at a very basic level, just self-help. Yeah. Yeah. And a doorway that you have to go through yourself. I mean, they can explain it all and everything that's involved with it or the theory behind it, but you have to go through that door yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, a lot of the self-help, literature is itself based on these earlier hermetic or, or mystical traditions. That's another level of the complexity. Yeah. You know, the, the least BS filled book I ever self-help book I ever read was that, um, was Maxwell Maltz's book. I don't know that book. Oh, what's it called? Um, uh, psycho cybernetics. Oh, huh. Basically it was just how do people operate? What do happy people do? The happy people, the happy person has a goal. And moves towards <laughs> that goal, yeah. Which is basically the the if you distill all the esoteric thought, at least the uh, Western occult thought, down into one thing in a Western context, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. 
So right. yeah, don't don't join the Golden Dawn. Just read uh, Psycho Cybernetics <laughs> by Maxwell Maltz. <laughs> so, I, you know, yeah, and part of that is you know sometimes people will say to me, um, "Well, why are you all so optimistic?" Yeah, and my reply is is along these lines. I mean, I've never read that book, but it's that look. Maybe things will turn out really badly. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah, a lot, there's a lot of reason actually to think that. Uh huh. And I I don't want to deny any of that. But being optimistic about the future will itself have impact. In other words, we we tend to get what we think. Mm-hmm. And if we, and and I don't mean that in any in any occult sense. I mean that in a very practical sense. Yeah, practical we, psychological sense. Yeah. Yeah. If we're if we're pessimistic about the future, well, then the future will probably be very pessimistic because we'll we'll act accordingly. And if, but if we're optimistic about the future, it will likely, it'll much more likely turn out to be positive because we will act accordingly. And so, yeah, my answer to why I'm an optimist, it's not because I know that optimism is true and pessimism is false. I don't know that, and it's probably not true, by the way. Yeah. But, but I think these things have effects, and and I think some attitudes and belief systems are more positively of future oriented than others yeah which is what the i think the point of the book is is just to point a way forward that is positive and curious and multicultural and multifaceted rather than one that is um the opposite of all those things yeah and that's i think that's the main thing i got out of the book it's like you know the superhumanities and the superhumanists is for anybody. It's available there for anybody that wants to use it in any way they need to do. And, yeah. And what Robert w- Anton Wilson called the winner script, which is probably what saved my life, um, Jeff. Oh, huh. Why don't I imagine that the entire future is going to turn out fine instead of horribly? I tried that for a few years and it worked. Huh. Well. So yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'll come up and 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 testify right now, but. Um, uh, I think that the you know superhumanities is is exactly in that vein, and uh, with all the scholarship behind it, um, can show us how that uh, uh, the future can be um, hopeful, and can and it, 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 if it is if every everything just if we all get bombed into oblivion or whatever, at least we'll be happy on the way there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I you know. The, the going back to the book, and, and it might infect people that can do something about it. If we all, yeah. you know, think okay, things can't, things can suck, things suck, but they can be better. I mean, look, on any given day, trickle or, up, you know. Yeah, in any given year, the colleges and universities around the world might be educating literally tens of millions of human beings. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a big impact, and. Today, when journalists contact me, or let's imagine a politician, or where I just look at them and I'm like, "You're my student," and what I mean by that is, I had you in class, <laughs> and I don't mean that person, but I mean you're just a grown-up who was once in a college classroom, and now you think X, Y, and Z. And so what I mean by the superhuman humanities is let's institutionalize this. Let's get this into our systems of higher education so that 
it can influence as many people as possible, journalists, mm -hmm. politicians, activists, scientists, yeah. teachers, high school teachers, you name it. Yeah. Let's, people let's, that people are going to be reading about and seeing on TV and all this other stuff. Yeah, let's let's reach 100 million people, not not 100 or 1,000. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the book is about, is that broader reach. It's not... It's not a very humble book, Craig. I, I hope Nothing good is. Yeah, I hope it's humbly written. <laughs> no, it is. It, it, it treads that line very well. It's like, I assert these things. I am not sorry I assert these things, uh, <laughs> but I am not God and I'm not a guru and all that other stuff. I, I think it treads that line very well. Okay, good. Um, it's I, because it's, its vision is very grand, even though its visionary is not so grand. <laughs> Um, I should probably let you go, though. Yeah, I've got to go, Greg. I've got to get to this. I've got a young man waiting for me who came from another state to see me, and I, I just have to go. I have to go. No, well, go talk to him. If he came all this way, you uh, he must have something important to say or to hear from you. So yeah, I, well, we'll see. We'll all right. Go. I enjoyed the chat, though, Greg. I always enjoy visiting with you. Yes, yeah, same here. There's and a lot of stuff in here we didn't talk about. We can do it at another time, but yeah, this this has yeah. been great. Okay, let's do it then. Okay, thanks, Jeff. All right. Bye -bye. All right, bye. While I was walking down the beach one bright and sunny day, I saw a great big wooden box a-floating in the bay. I pulled it in and opened it up, and much to my surprise, ooh, I discovered a... Right before my eyes, ooh, I discovered a... Right before my eyes, I picked it up and ran to town as happy as a king. I took it to a guy I knew who'd buy most anything. But this is what he hollered at me as I walked in his shop. Oh, get out of here with that. Before I call a cop. Oh, get out of here with that. Before I call a cop. I turned around and got right out of running for my life. And then I took it home with me to give it to my wife. But this is what she hollered at me as I walked in the door. Oh, get out of here with that. And don't come back no more. Oh, get out of here with that. And don't come back no more. I wandered all around the town until I chanced to meet a hobo who was looking for a handout on the street. He said he'd take most any old thing. He was a desperate man. But when I showed him the... He turned around and ran. Oh, when I showed him the... He turned around and ran. I wandered on for many years, a victim of my fate. Until one day I came upon St. Peter at the gate. And when I tried to take it inside, he told me where to go. Get out of here with that... And take it down below. Oh, get out of here with that. And take it down below. The moral of the story is if you're out on the beach and you should see a great big box and it's within your reach, don't ever stop and open it up. That's my advice to you. Cause you'll never get rid of them. No matter what you do. Oh, you'll never get rid of them. No matter what you do.